Well, do please turn back to John's Gospel, and we come this morning to John chapter 7, verse 53, through to chapter 8, verse 11, which hopefully you will find in your Bibles, and if not, you'll certainly find them in the church Bibles on page 894. And before we read, I should say a word about those ominous square brackets around our passage today. Think yourself into the desk of some poor ancient scribe trying faithfully, meticulously, patiently to make a copy of the Scriptures and preserve it for the next generation before the manuscript you have to work with crumbles into dust. And imagine what a bad day at work you're having when you pick up your papers from John's Gospel and one loose leaf falls out. You read it, and it's like it's written in letters of pure gold. It just has the ring of beauty, of authenticity. Jesus' sheep hear their master's voice, a beautiful window into his heart towards sinners. The only problem is you can't quite be sure where it came from. Many of those ancient scribes put it right here. Some put it in other parts of John. One even put it in Luke. And if you look down at the footnote in the church Bibles, you'll see that in the two oldest copies of the New Testament that we have now, two very good quality codices, it's just missing completely, this passage. So what do we do with it this morning? Well, the first thing we need to do is take a deep breath and not panic. We only even know this is a problem because God in his providence has preserved so much incredibly high-quality manuscript evidence for us for these Gospels. We have an embarrassment of ancient sources more than for any other comparable classical book. Obviously, we don't have the physical inspired document that John wrote down any more than we have what Plato wrote or what Shakespeare wrote. Everyone is working with copies of those original documents, but we have a lot of those and some very, very old ones. And the remarkable thing is that there are barely any major differences between those thousands of copies spread around the world. We've got two major families of manuscripts, which lies at the heart of this conundrum. There's one stream of ancient manuscripts we've got that we found two surviving copies of that are very, very old, but for most of church history, they were squirreled away in a library in the Vatican or a monastery in Sinai, and that's what our modern translations here tend to follow, the ESV or the NIV, who put this bit in brackets. And then there's another stream of manuscripts, a family of copies, where our first surviving copy is a little later, but it was from a tradition that was very broadly accepted and used, hundreds of copies used and preserved across the ancient world in hundreds of churches. And that is the tradition that came down to us in the King James Version and what for most of history in the Western church, our ancestors have received and believed. And yet for all the differences between all those copies, 
there are really only two significant passages in the New Testament that one family has and the other doesn't. And it just so happens that this morning we've come to the hardest one of those. So don't panic. The arguments for and against how original this passage are are very finely balanced. But J.C. Ryle, the old bishop, has some wise words to say. If there are so many good and credible arguments, he says, in favor of this passage, the most disputed text in the whole canon, think what a firm foundation we have for the rest. And importantly, there is nothing in this passage that in any way contradicts anything else in the Bible or adds any doctrines to it or robs any doctrines from it. Now, all that said, um, I have to admit that the majority of New Testament scholars today would say that this probably wasn't originally written by John. And some would say that it shouldn't even be in our Bibles. And they've got some fair arguments on their side. I'm no text critic. I'm not a scholar. But I'm not sure that the evidence against this is quite as decisive as the majority of scholars today would argue. It is true there is vocabulary in this passage that John doesn't tend to use elsewhere in his gospel, but there are, when you look closely, some repeated themes and phrases that are very dominant in the rest of this chapter and the chapters around it. If you want to hear them later over coffee time, I think there are some very convincing arguments to make that, in fact, this could be right where this little paragraph belongs. It's true we can't be sure that John wrote this, but we don't know who wrote Hebrews or many of the Psalms. What we trust there is that God, by his Spirit, inspired it, and God, in his love, preserved it for us all these centuries. It's true we don't have anything written about this little text from any of the early Eastern church fathers. What we have from them, though, is mainly collections of surviving sermons and homilies. It's an argument from silence based on the ones that have been preserved. What we do have is Augustine, one of the major Western church fathers, not only preaching this in the fourth century, but making a pretty damning critique of people who, in his view, tried to scratch this out of their Bibles because they didn't like its message of grace to a sinful woman. There are no easy reasons to see why some patient, careful scribe would want to stick this in if it doesn't belong. It doesn't change any Bible doctrine, but as Augustine argued, there are plenty of explanations as to why people would be uncomfortable with Jesus' message of forgiveness to an adulterous wife here and want to leave this out. And I think just as convincingly for me, God has providentially kept this passage for the church for centuries. He put it in Ambrose's Bible and in Augustine's Bible and Luther and Calvin's Bibles and in J.C. Ryle's Bibles and in your granny's Bible. And all of them received it trustingly, and they loved Jesus more for what it showed them about him and his justice and his grace. So I would suggest that the side of caution would be to include it carefully as a true account of Jesus' life, 
and enjoy the same things in his heart that we see here that those Christians before us enjoyed century after century. So before we read, let me give the last word to John Calvin. As this passage, he said, has always been received by the Latin churches and is found in many of the old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of the apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. So by God's help, let's do that together now. Let me read from John chapter 7, verse 53. If you remember, Jesus has been in the temple around the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, and the story continues. They went each to his own house, but John went, Jesus, sorry, went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones until the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and seeing no one except the woman, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, do please make sure that passage is opened in front of you. John chapter 8. And let's bow our heads for a moment. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. Loving Heavenly Father, please lead us this morning to our fountain of living water, that in him we would find all our condemnation is gone. Amen. Well, I wonder if you can put yourself back for a moment to a time when you were caught red-handed. I was a seven-year-old boy hiding behind a wall with my sister throwing gravel at passing cars, when all of a sudden one driver slammed on the brakes and this big German man came charging towards us. We ran into the house in terror, and at first my horrified mother literally tried to chase him out of the hallway with a broom, but pretty quickly the penny dropped. I was staring at my feet, tears of shame starting to burn my eyes, the gravel still in my hands. 
Well, I'm a big boy now. And it doesn't often catch up with us like that as grown-ups, does it? Unless you're a member of the Scottish government. But we won't feel the beauty of this passage unless we realize that it puts all of us right back in those shoes. Each of us is like that red-cheeked, shame-faced little boy, caught red-handed and deserving everything that's coming to us. It was Augustine who coined the phrase I've stolen today for my title. We are caught here in the courtyard of the temple, a busy, bustling place. But by the end of verse 9, it's as if everything in that busy background blurs out. And the only thing that matters in all the world is this interaction between two people left alone, standing face to face, one who has been caught red-handed and the other, the judge of all the earth, the miserable and the mercy-hearted. And her story, this guilty woman, is an absolutely wonderful story that shows us something wonderful in the heart of Jesus. She arrives caught and condemned, but she leaves changed. The truth is, though, there is a second story being written here, and that is far, far more sad, because there is a whole crowd of people around Jesus that day who have the opposite tale, and every one of them leaves just how this woman arrived, guilty, convicted, ashamed. So let's take the passage in two, caught and changed. And the question in verses 53 through to verse 9 is, who is it who's been caught? And maybe more pointedly, can we readers see ourselves here exposed alongside the miserable? Now, it's natural, isn't it, for our sympathy to go straight to this humiliated woman. In fact, that is what this whole cynical ploy of Jesus' critics depends on. They are using her because they know a vulnerable woman like this is pitiable. But first, we do have to recognize that there is no doubt here of the woman's guilt. In fact, that's laid on for us thick and repeatedly, isn't it? She's not just caught. She's caught in the act, committing the deeds. There are witnesses. And at the end, her guilt is assumed. So this woman has been guilty of what, let's admit, is a horrible, horrible thing, a marriage-ruining thing, a children-betraying thing. There's nothing romantic that we can varnish this with. This is something with such awful and tragic consequences that God says it deserves death. Now, an obvious question is, where is the man? Presumably, he was caught as well. It takes two to tango, doesn't it? And the punishment in the law was explicitly the same for both parties. Now, it is possible, before we get to Me Too, that he has been dragged out and stoned on the spot. There are times in the New Testament where we see people pick up stones and throw right away. In fact, it's going to happen before this chapter is out. They don't always go through the formalities and square it all up legally with the Romans. 
It's possible that there's a horrible chauvinistic double standard here, that they've just turned a blind eye to him. But what we're told in verse 6 gives us an even more uncomfortable impression. They've dragged this poor, humiliated woman out into the public temple courts to stand before Jesus precisely because a poor, humiliated woman makes a useful tool. They don't do this because they love God and in a holy way they care about sin and goodness and truth. They don't do this out of a sincere desire to hear what Jesus will have to say. They do this to test him and find an excuse to kill him. And God's law of love and justice, which they pretend to be so passionate about, is really just something to be used to get what they want. They use the Bible, just like many today, just like they use the woman herself. So however deep and real her guilt is, these men are engaged in something infinitely more disgusting, aren't they? Using God's law to destroy the lawgiver himself, along with anyone else who proves useful to them. That's all she is, this fellow fallen human being, a useful tool. But the trap that they're setting is more sophisticated than it looks at first. What they are really doing here is facing Jesus with the age-old dilemma right at the heart of the gospel itself. Here is a man, Jesus, who John has claimed is full of both grace and truth. But can he possibly be both of those things? What if we can force him to choose between God's mercy and God's justice? What if we can pit those two things against each other? If he chooses mercy, he might win the crowds, but he'll show himself to be corrupt, a false teacher of God's truth. And if he chooses justice, he might lose those who pity this woman, but then we'll have ammunition to take to the Romans. Here is a rival authority carrying out his own law. And better still, all those claims he's made of bringing love and forgiveness and new life will look thin and hollow. He's claimed to be God of God, sent from the Father's heart. And he's come, he said, for people exactly like this woman, for people deserving death. In fact, we've seen him already left all alone once in this book with another adulterous bride. She was a Samaritan. This one is a Jew. Will he be less gracious to his own than he was to the first? Well, Augustine had two words to say to that. God forbid... He came not to lose what was found, but to find what was lost. Which of us, God forbid, which of us would ever dare to look again to Jesus for grace when we are ashamed and caught red-handed if he demanded here that this woman got what she deserved? But which of us could ever trust him, the judge of all the earth, to do what is right if 
He just acted like a betrayed husband and a broken family didn't matter. How can this man, Jesus Christ, possibly uphold all that is in God himself, holiness and mercy, justice and truth? Well, sit back and watch and then adore what you see in his heart. A Jesus whose heart really is full of goodness and truth and yet also full of love for sinners, all at the same time, without any contradiction, just like the Father he comes from. Jesus' response really is extraordinary and wonderful, isn't it? He just stoops down and doodles in the dust. And we'd love to know what he wrote. We're not told. The important thing, I guess, isn't what he wrote, but that he wrote. Some in the early church saw this as a kind of acted parable. It's as if Jesus is acting out those words that we had for our call to worship in Jeremiah 17. That would fit perfectly, wouldn't it, with what this whole unit of John is all about? Those who forsake the Lord like these men, those who forsake the fountain of living water, shall be written in the dust. Well, it happens twice. We have our attention drawn to his stooping, his sitting, his standing. And we'll never know for sure if he wrote that verse or if he wrote his verdict or if he just doodled a sad face. The point is that all this time, holy Jesus, the judge, he refuses to be rushed into an answer, refuses to play their cynical game. He forces them in verse 7 to show their impatience. And all this time, he's drawn the attention off this exploited woman and onto himself while he sits as the true judge and scratches in the dust and weighs every human heart. And then at last comes the answer, which shows that, yes, he has seen right through them. There's no question that this woman is guilty, that she deserves death even. The question is, who among them is qualified to condemn her? Let's him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone. Now, the beautiful thing about that answer is that Jesus is also using the law. It was the witnesses in a case of adultery who had to carry out the punishment. They had to follow through on their words. So Jesus is using the law too, isn't he? But not the way they are. He isn't using God's word to get what he wants. He's using the law to do the very thing he gave it to do, to lift up a mirror to human hearts. Do any of you men have the integrity to qualify as a valid, impartial witness who can pick up a stone and throw it at this woman's head? Or have you all corrupted your own testimony? And they know the answer, don't they? Even in coming here to Jesus like this, in dragging this woman before him, in longing for her to be condemned and for the Son of God to be disgraced, they've disqualified themselves. Jesus is upholding the law the way he always does, by taking it out of cold, cynical, procedural stuff, and putting it back at the level of hearts and love and holiness. She's an adulterer. 
They are here as murderers, using a law of love with hearts full of pride and hate. Now, don't assume that Jesus says things here that he doesn't say. He doesn't say that we can never judge any sins unless we are perfect ourselves. Otherwise, as Calvin put it, that would take all judicial decisions out of the world. This would be a miserable place to live. And Jesus is very clear in the Gospels that sometimes we have to make judgments. In fact, Jesus is recognizing here that this woman could justly be condemned to death. What she's done should be hated and despised and judged. But there's a particular sin that these men are guilty of that is particularly disgusting. God's word isn't a tool for us to use against other people. First of all, God's word is a charge sheet condemning us. And so Jesus sits back down with his eyes on the ground. And one by one, as they stand in the presence of this one truly righteous man, God from God, the lawgiver, the lover of men, one by one, they find all their bravado slipping away. And they can't keep up the act. God has made sure, hasn't he, that there is a little voice inside all of us that knows the truth, no matter how hard. It's what all of us will find whenever we encounter this real Jesus for ourselves, And when we see him one day face to face, all the lies and stuff and nonsense will be stripped away from us. And all our hearts and thoughts and motives will be laid bare caught. But how desperately sad that even though they hear that truth in their hearts, they won't come clean right now before their judge and savior. Instead, they slink away angry and ashamed because there is an eternal chasm, isn't there, between shame and conviction of sin and actual true repentance. And so when Jesus lifts up his eyes again, in those beautiful words from Augustine, the two were left alone, misery and the mercy-hearted. This one woman, in all her sin and shame, standing before the one person in all the earth, qualified right now to pick up a stone. All of them are caught, aren't they? All of us. But only she is changed, number two. And so the last few verses from second half of verse 9 through to verse 11, we're asked this question. Will we stand alone like her before the mercy-hearted? It must have been a terrifying moment for this woman, don't you think? Waiting, waiting, waiting for the stones to fly. Think how utterly traumatic it is when a captured soldier gets put through a mock execution, brought that close to death. It's as if in verse 9, she's staring right into that abyss, the full horrifying reality of where her life is leading her. And then she comes face to face with the judge and discovers a heart full of mercy. Two questions from Jesus. Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? 
one of the weirdest moments as you take a wedding as a minister saying these words. I must ask anyone present who knows a just reason why these two may not lawfully be joined together to declare it now or forever hold your peace. And then as always, so far at least, comes the most awkward, anxious silence in the world. And in your head as a minister, all you are thinking is, how long do I leave this? And what will I do if someone speaks? Because that is a real question, isn't it? For the sake of justice, it has to be asked. This has to be a real marriage, not a sham. Woman, where are your accusers? Silence. And then she speaks the only words we ever hear her speak in this story. No one, Lord. Do you know that you can say those words if your hope is in this man? I wonder if you hear what she is saying there. This woman who knows her shame, she's saying, Lord, there is no one left to condemn me except you. You have put every accuser to flight, and I'm in your hands. So now it is just like that Samaritan woman back at the well. There is a great stress here on her aloneness. She is all alone before Jesus, the judge of all the world. And this scandalous woman, eventually all of us will be there. All of us have business to do that is between our heart and his. And nobody else can face it with us or speak for us. Jesus has a legal duty now to pick up a rock and bring justice. That is the right thing to do. That's what she must expect. But instead, he says two more astonishing things. And it's both of these together that make the true gospel and the order matters. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, we have to ask ourselves, how can Jesus possibly utter those words? On what basis can he let her just walk free? Because it looks like all he's done is get rid of the witnesses and then walk straight into their trap all by himself. And if he'd said just one of these two astonishing things, then, well, that would be exactly what he'd done. God would not be God, and the gospel wouldn't be the gospel. But he says two things at the same time. I have taken away all your condemnation. Now leave that life behind forever. He doesn't affirm her in her sin. It's not a different gospel for her with her struggles and her identity. He won't let her slip away without seeing what true repentance is going to look like in her life. He holds up the same mirror for her as he held up to all the others, and he says, turn away from what you see there. If he'd let her walk away thinking that sin doesn't matter, then in the end, he'd be as corrupt as all the rest. But we're going to see that sin matters more to him than right now this woman could possibly imagine. So it must be that Jesus has another answer to this problem. Jesus speaks to her in a way that only he could ever possibly have spoken. 
because in him, infinite love and infinite justice really can coexist. He has another way to solve that dilemma right at the heart of the gospel. And in fact, we've seen hints of it already. Even as these men are trying to trap him and kill him, they are leading him to it, a cross where he will take all the condemnation of his bride and justice will be done. Jim Phillip and others point out something beautiful here. If we assume that this passage is right where it belongs, then look at how John chapter 8 develops. It begins and it ends with an attempted stoning. Here at the start, Jesus stops one, and at the end, verse 59, Jesus faces one himself. It's as if he has traded places with his adulterous bride, silenced every accuser, and that makes him a judge unlike any other judge. He can say not guilty without just sweeping sin under the carpet. He really does have a unique authority on earth to forgive sins, but also to send us away the way he sends this woman away, ransomed and claimed for him by his grace for a new life, changed his. So here's the other thing then that makes Jesus entirely different. The Son of God is in absolutely no rush to make an immediate, hasty, temporal judgment. He has all the time for patience and mercy that he chooses to give us. Because in the end, no human being escapes from his court. He can justly forgive this woman and send her away to live a new life. And one day he knows she will come before him again. And her whole story will have its day in court. Not just what she did before, but something far, far more important. What she did with his grace. And it will be the same, won't it, when our story has its day once upon a time, whatever we had done, we saw the deep, wonderful holiness and grace that Jesus Christ showed to us on his cross. What story did the rest of our lives tell? When we walked free from all that, did his grace melt our hearts and begin to change us? I think one key way that we'll see that will be in our attitude to other sinful people. That's the big contrast here, isn't it? We see Jesus' wonderful heart towards sinners, a man who burns for justice and truth, and yet he's full of grace. And in contrast, we see a bunch of men who see this disgraced woman, and instead of grieving they see her falling as their opportunity. Can those really be people who've tasted grace? Maybe for some of us, there is an obvious application to this story. If this is the heart of Jesus towards sinners, 
surely we have to be forgiving people. Even in those most piercing times when we are so hurt and we want to lash out and to punish, even sometimes a husband and a wife who've been betrayed by the other. Is that asking too much? Well, Augustine didn't think so. You say, he said, it's difficult to imagine for the husband and wife to be reconciled following an adultery. But if faith is present, it shall not be impossible. For why should we reckon as adulterers those whom we believe are washed by baptism and healed by repentance? Why would people want to get rid of a story like this? Well, Augustine thought the answer to that was simple. Some men are simply enemies of Christ, and so they won't forgive. And a story where Jesus shows more mercy to this woman than they would ever show to their own was just too embarrassing for them. Well, there will be times when We'll find ourselves in that position, wanting to throw the book just to hurt and get our way. And there will be many, many more times when we'll find ourselves on the other side, needing forgiveness from Jesus. So as we close, let's take a moment to look hard at who he shows himself to be. All that is in God is wonderfully good wonderfully kind, wonderfully holy. And all that is in God is in Jesus. So what an encouragement that is when we need to come and stand on our own before him like this woman here and confess what we've done. Don't slink away. Don't hide it. Don't put it off. Look who he is the mercy-hearted. So will we lay it all at his feet and ask him to forgive and to make it new? Let's pray. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Lord Jesus, we rejoice to hear those wonderful words spoken to us who you could have justly condemned each of us a thousand times over. And so we want to say thank you. And we want to say sorry. And we want to say please. Thank you, Jesus, for that extraordinary kindness and patience and mercy that fills your heart that you have shown to us in the cross where your justice and your love came perfectly together. We're sorry, Lord, that you have called us in such kindness to leave our lives of sin, and yet there is so much of those lives that we still cling to and cherish. Help us, we pray, to be honest and humble with you about that. And so please, Lord, please, would your mercy change our hearts? And would this window into your hearts keep us coming back to you for grace? 
as our judge and our friend. For your own namesake, we ask it. Amen.